Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Okay, this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast, and this will be episode 44. Uh, this is a pretty special episode for me um, because of the guests that I have, and uh, I've got South Cox on today. South, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. <laughs> I'm, uh, geez, it, there's hardly a more exciting time of year than right now. I mean, we're, what, two and a half weeks out from the opener in Nevada. I've got food, backpacking <laughs> food strewn all over my counter right now, and <laughs> got my freeze dryer running wide open. I mean, I can't hardly get that thing to go faster than or fast enough. I'm, yeah, I, I'm. This is the best time of year right now. <laughs> well, put put yourself in my shoes, and uh, you know, you've you've got a, I've got a hunt coming up. Uh, in fact, it's it's the same. You know, we're hunting the same uh, area in Nevada, mm-hmm. and uh, that's coming up in about two weeks. We'll be leaving, and um. I'm interviewing basically one of my hunting idols, um, (laughs) (laughs) on my podcast and man, it's just like, this is the pinnacle, you know, I've, I I've actually been on your podcast and for some, and, and I was totally honored by that, but, um, for some reason this, this is, uh, to me is almost more special because you're, you're my guest and that's just, it's just crazy. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. Sure thing, man. It's funny. The twists and turns life takes, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because the irony, okay, get this one, right? So the irony in that one is, so 1987, were you even born then? 86. (laughs) 86, all right. So you were in diapers. So 1987, I walked into an archery shop down in San Rose. I just graduated from high school. I moved down to San Rose about 150 miles or so from where I'd been living. And I'd gotten a job down there. And, uh, of course, you know, you got to check out the local archery shop. So I walk into this archery shop and um, on the TV in there, and this is dating myself, they had, you know, VHS tapes back then. DVDs were, you know, a long time from being invented back then. (laughs) So uh, they had Larry Jones's new VHS plan, Hunting Open Country Mule Deer. And that was my first real exposure to mule deer hunting. I had you know, read tons of articles in field and stream and outdoor life and all that, um, as a kid, but I had never seen it, you know, and, and, uh, that inspired me that I was so taken by that, that, uh, VHS tape that, uh, that inspired me to go hunt mule deer the following year in Oregon. And I was able to shoot my first mule deer, um, you know, with the bow there in, in Oregon after watching that, which of course that even got me worse hooked. And, uh, and I met Larry, I want to say I met Larry in, in 88, uh, maybe at, at a hunting show. And then I had, end up going up, taking his elk workshop just so that I could kind of, you know, be more involved and see kind of more of what was going on in the industry. And, and I would see Larry every year at various hunting shows and got, you know, got to kind of be friends with them and, and got a chance to, um, 
a few years after that, hunted with him up in Oregon on a blacktail hunt. Um, I had a tag and, and I hadn't filled it during, the, you know, the earlier season. So I went up there in that late season blacktail hunt and he was gracious enough to invite me to hunt a piece of private property he had permission to hunt on. And then since then, um, I've hunted pigs with them, uh, once before. And, and, uh, so fast forward to this spring and, and I get a phone call and it's Larry Jones and he says, Hey, uh, you know, I've got, uh, six, six points for, um, you know, for deer in Nevada and, you know, he kind of jokes and he laughs. He says, yeah, I don't want to take them with me when I go. And, uh, <laughs> he goes, Hey, would you be into, you know, I put in with you and, and, uh, we share a camp together and, cause it's been a while since I've been in Nevada. He's saying this to me, it's been a while since I've been in Nevada. And so I don't really know kind of, you know, what's going on with deer populations where, and, and, uh, man, I was like, uh, uh <laughs> yep. especially I'm thinking I've got one point, so I've got nothing to contribute to the draw here as far as draw odds. So I was like, this is a no brainer. I get to hunt with the guy who inspired me to hunt mule deer. So, I mean, storylines for days there. So I can totally relate You know, when you say that, that you're uh, getting to interview me. Oh, I'm getting to hunt with Larry. So I'm one up in you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, if that's what yeah. it takes, I'll start building my bonus points. If you don't, if you don't see me hunt Nevada for five or six years, it's because I'm <laughs> building bonus points. Then I'm going to call you up. Hey, you looking to All draw right. a tag, buddy? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, no, you'll certainly be invited to camp. <laughs> yeah, a guy with bonus <laughs> points, points is your. Yeah, a guy with bonus points to share is your best friend in, instantly. But no doubt about it. Yeah, and then Bloody old pal, Dustin. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then on top of that, um, you know, you, you were kind enough to send me kind of a pre-screening, I'll, I'll call it. Cause I, you know, I, everyone likes to sound like a cool, uh, you know, one of the movie stars that gets to see a pre-screening of anything. Sure. <clears throat> so I got to see a, I don't even know that it was a pre-screening cause I think you, you sent it about the time it, it's, it's been out or pre-ordered right now, but your uh, your new, uh, your second DVD, uh, that's coming out. And yeah, uh, return to the back country, return yep. to the back country. And I'll tell you what, man, <clears throat> I speak for anyone who watched your first, uh, DVD. When I say it is about time and we ah, <laughs> have all right. been sitting on the edge <laughs> of our seats. And I, yeah. I was just talking to you before we hit record there. I said, I've, <clears throat> I've watched all five hunts three times already. <laughs> and so, all right. Man, just just the all inclusiveness of all that, I'm uh, I'm I'm jacked, man. Um, nice. Good <clears throat> can't deal. wait to get in there. So, well, you saw the intro, you know, I did, which uh, you saw the struggles kind of coming into the starting the second one, and yeah, it was it was humbling. I mean, you know, there's nothing like when you step up to the plate and you hit a home run every time and then you get up to the plate and you strike out a bunch of times in a row to kind of deflate um you know your confidence and and all that and i started out this second dvd project and i was full of you know confidence going into it and i mean it was fortunate the way it worked out um it seems like whenever i uh, and this dates back to when I was shooting a compound as well, but whenever I kind of start to get like, Oh yeah, this is, this is a done deal. Then man, I get served up a fat slice of humble pie. <laughs> and, uh, and it happened not once, you know, in the beginning of this project, but multiple times. And so, 
you know, as a result of that, it really caused me to kind of step back and, and, uh, you know, kind of take it more seriously from a filming standpoint so that I, I mean, basically I end up hiring Wes and hiring Zach and between the two of them, then I could just not think about it from the filming standpoint. You know, there was some stuff that I would say, you know, some creative stuff. I'd say, oh, let's make sure we get this shot or whatever, but I could focus on, on uh, hunting instead of on trying to film and, and, you know, get my hunting partners to film or me, you know, hold the camera to get the shot that I wanted. Yeah. And those guys just took over and it was fantastic working with both of them. Um, and not only did I um, improve as a hunter and I was able to, you know, focus exclusively on the hunting. Um, but then the quality also just took a massive leap forward. So, yeah. uh, you know, it re- I think it really showed in the end product here. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, the first thing that we, one of the first things that we noticed was just the, the, you know, not, not that the quality before was, was poor. Um, but just, man, there's well, just like things... standard deaf to HD. Oh yeah. Know? I mean, just yeah. from the actual video, you know, yeah. itself, the, the image quality, let alone the creative shots. Yeah. So, well, and yeah. you know, the irony of that is, um, your first DVD, that's kind of more the quality you're talking. Um, nobody cared, you know, that, that, yeah. that that's one thing I, I would always tell, um, you know, we, we get so caught up sometimes and worrying about having the most perfect like picture or like everything has to be perfect. And, and, and that's nice, but really it's the content, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's what hooked you guys to your, your first one. And, and I guarantee you the second one after seeing it is, uh, you know, just the, the, the epicness of the, of the stocks and the closeness of the shots and the intimate, you know, details and stuff like that. So man, it's, it's sweet. Um, yeah. So you've got five hunts on there and, uh, 15, 16 and 17, right. Is that about the course? Yeah. Yeah. Covers, uh, covers two, two States, Nevada and Colorado. Um, man. And, and, the first one that I watched, I, I just, um, you, you kind of, you, you made it look too easy. I'll be honest. Um, that, <laughs> that first one in Colorado, you click on it and you start watching, you're like, okay, here we go. First time you glass, you basically, you get in there, you hike in there, you find some bucks, you glass one up, you stock it, you kill it. It was a seven yard shot. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, that one came together pretty oh, smoothly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of stick bow drama in that one, like there was, uh, you know, on the first hunt of the first DVD. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other ones, the other ones get a little bit better. There's, you know, there's some misses and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just, uh, just epic. You know, I I notice, um, you know, one thing that I noticed even back on your on your first one and just watching you hunt and, um, and I always make note of this to like my brother and my family is. Um, what, what do you, what are you telling yourself when you stock in like that and you do get within bow range and you miss, like, what, what are you telling yourself mentally that allows you from what I've seen to have such a good attitude about it and go forward? You know, um, I think that, I don't know where I kind of, um, where I, uh, had kind of a mental shift in my life. Um, you know, where I've been able to kind of let stuff roll off my back like that. Cause I, um, I, I have the same approach in business as well. Like if something goes wrong or I mean, <clears throat> 2005, 
my uh, my cabinet shop burnt to the ground, and I lost probably a quarter million dollars. And my my uh, secretary hadn't paid, hadn't renewed my um, my tool coverage, so it had my it had lapsed. So that was all one hundred percent out of pocket. And I had thirteen employees at that point in time, and so I mean we basically we were screwed. And I was leaving for Nevada in you know a week to go uh, to go hunting, and that was that year that I I hunted with uh, Cam hunted with me, and we filmed it for Eastman's, and and uh, so to be able to bounce back from things like that, and um, the my mentality kind of through at some point in my adult life, I, I don't, I can't pinpoint exactly where the shift happened, <clears throat> but, um, I, I chose to, rather than dwelling on the things that you have no control, instead of looking backwards, looking forward. And so, you know, I miss a shot and it can be easy to get wrapped up and consumed and bummed out and missing the shot. And there are, I mean, I don't, walk away you know grinning ear to ear from blowing a slam dunk opportunity i mean it does eat at me for a minute but it's you know i brush it off quickly and and uh and then i'm able to turn it around and and be positive and go you know over the next ridge and look for another opportunity because what's going to happen is if you let those opportunities those blown opportunities get you down, then you're not going to be hunting as hard or you're not going to be in life. You're not going to be trying as hard. You're not going to be giving it your hundred percent like you would on opening morning. And the, the longer period of time that you can keep that positive attitude and keep that, that focus and that effort that you, um, that you did on opening morning or, you know, your first business deal that you ever had you know, the the longer that you can keep that then the more successful you're going to be because you're going to be trying hard every time just as if it was the first time yeah and some at some point in my life i was able to um, make that that switch and so there's not you know not only in hunting but in in my life period i i kind of try to approach it from that same with that same thought process you know, and as you were, as you were explaining that, I was thinking like, you know, you know what that sounds like to me is it sounds like a guy who is doing whatever you're doing for the right reasons. You know what I'm saying? And you, you've, you enjoy the process. You're in love with the process. Um, you don't have an ulterior motive. You know, when, when I think of, um, the times on my hunts or whatever, when I blow a stock and I go in and I totally screw something up or there's an equipment failure and I've let it get me down, I can almost guarantee, like, I can almost he- feel my thought at that time was like, like, crap, I didn't get that huge buck or that huge bull that everyone was going to look at me and be happy for me and proud of me, you know, and I was going to get so many likes on Instagram or whatever. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it just sounds like you're a guy mm-hmm. that has you know, you have a love for the process. And so, um, you know, if there's a setback like that, it's like, cool, you know, we get, I get to go stock another mule there. Like, I wish that one sure. would have happened, but man, I just love being here and I love doing, doing what we're doing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah, there's like, like you just talked about that first hunt of the trip where, um, or that first hunt of the DVD rather, where I killed that buck on the second day. Um, and then you look at that hunt in contrast to the last hunt on the DVD where 
um, you know, I was hunting with Justin and Kendall and they both, you know, Justin shoots this monster buck. I didn't say it on the DVD, but that thing scored 199 and change. It was a hell of a buck. Right. And, uh, so he, um, he tags out on, I, I, I think it was the second day. Kendall tags out a couple days later, those guys vacate the mountain and Wes and I are up there by ourselves. So, and then a, a, another guy, Jay, um, Byers was up there, uh, photographing with, uh, with Kendall. So when Kendall tagged out, they both left and it may have been even the next day. I can't remember. So, but in any case, it was like, we had, I mean, it was insane. We had like what, five people up there in our camp. And it, to me, it felt like, um, it was a, a small town or city that we had going up on the side of the mountain. And then, you know, slowly this attrition of guys tagging out and leaving. And all of a sudden it was just Wes and I, and I, you know, blew a shot, um, at least one shot opportunity. No, I did. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, I, I blew a shot on, on the one buck that you saw in film. And then, um, there's that scene where I'm talking to, uh, Kendall and, uh, Jay about, you know, that stock we went on. Well, I couldn't, we didn't have the right footage to be able to make that whole scene complete and the story makes sense. So I had to cut it out and the shot angles were bad. And, um, as far as from a video perspective, it just didn't work to include that, but I actually emptied my, not only did I empty my quiver on that buck, um, but I had an extra broadhead stuffed in my the hood of my quiver, and I was able to unscrew my Judo. stump point, my <laughs> practice point, and then screw in my broadhead and shot my fifth and final broadhead at this buck before it finally jumped the string on that last arrow and vacated. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was the most insane sequence that that I'd ever had. I wish I would have had you know, the right footage to make it work to fit in. Cause it was just, it was really funny the way it all came down. Um, but you know, going back to what you're talking about, um, I've never had a problem showing my misses and my failures and my flubs and all that. Cause I, uh, for one, it, I mean, it, I'm not embarrassed about it. Every one of us has missed every one of us has blown an opportunity has blown a stock has done something stupid. And if I can show the, um, you know, the viewer what not to do as much as what to do, um, then, then I think that it's a great, you know, learning resource and, you know, dating back to when I used to, to write a lot with Eastman's and Western Hunter and all the different publications I, I did. I mean, the whole idea behind that was education and inspiring guys to get out there. I mean, that's the same, the same thing I take away when I'm reading somebody else's articles or when I'm watching somebody else's video or when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm not only learning, but almost as important, I'm getting inspired. And that gets me back out you know, when I'm not feeling it to get back out there to shoot more or, you know, get out there and work on my physical fitness or whatever it is, that inspiration that I'm taking away from, um, those, you know, viewing and, and mostly honestly, it's now just listening to podcasts for me anymore. Cause I mm-hmm. just don't have much time to watch videos or read. Um, but if I can offer that same thing for people, um, you know, with watching this DVD, and if I, I felt like, or I feel like if I cut out all the misses, I mean, 
I'm not in this to be a superhero. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm no different than, than, uh, any other Tom, Dick or Harry, as far as when it comes to messing stuff up, I can do it just as efficiently as the next guy. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of, uh, I had Henry Ferguson on here and he was joking about how he's making up new ways of, of screwing up stocks. Uh Oh yeah. I'm finding new ways every year to blow a stock, you know, right. (laughs) That's how we all are. The ones that irritate me are the ones when I, when I like, you know, I should do this, but it's like, no, 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 I can make it happen. And then, <laughs> you know, you second guess yourself and you do it anyway. And, and, and then you screw it up and it's like, how stupid am I? I've been doing this for, you know, 30 odd years and I'm still making dumb rookie mistakes. But, you know, there, then again, I mean, somebody else might be in the same position and not know the, you know, not be the wiser. And if I can, teach them or enlighten them, you know, on something. Then, I mean, just for instance, um, this last, what was it? 2015 there in Nevada, when I took my pants off stock in that buck, I've never done that before, but I got to a situation where I had, you know, this buck bedded in a perfect position and all I, I was five yards or less from where I needed to be to be able to shoot this buck off the top of the rock. But I had this massive, bush with lots of dead branches that was i mean so thick and i needed to get through that bush there's no way around it i had to go through it and i knew that there's no way i'm going to be able to push through this thing my pants are going to be catching i mean i was wearing uh core four element pants which were not you know super noisy pants by any stretch but I just knew that there was no way it was going to, the branches were going to be pulling and snagging on it and any noise, you know, a branch against fabric was going to sound totally unnatural. And this deer was only 15 yards away. It's just not going to happen. And so I, I sat there and pondered it for a second. I'm like, how am I going to make this work? And then it's like, okay, well take my pants off. And so I took my pants off and, and, uh, you know, it, it didn't, I, I'd never done that before, never heard of anybody doing it before, but it was just problem solving in that moment. And uh, I ended up, you know, sub, since then, uh, have made multiple stocks, taking my pants off, going through thick willows or even slightly, you know, not even real thick, but just where I felt like if there was a danger of brushing a pant leg, um, you know, against fabric versus against my skin, my skin's going to be almost dead silent. Yeah. So it was a no brainer. You know, I mean, you work really hard for these opportunities and how many times have we had a branch scrape against, you know, a pant leg or something and, and make noise and, and, uh, you know, where if you didn't have that one little bit of noise and then you could have closed the, the deal on it. Yeah, well, it's it's become your signature move. In fact, the first year that you <laughs> the first year that you did that that you're referring to in Nevada, I'm pretty sure that was the year. Um, the the word that you killed it in your underwear spread faster than the than the actual <laughs> picture of the deer. I I specifically right. remember hearing that from someone like, uh, yeah, South killed a buck. He killed it in his underwear. <laughs> like that was it traveled like wildfire. So right, yeah, it was that was I'm pretty. Sure epic. People are thinking I got caught right in the middle of dropping yeah. a load or something, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how biggest else fear? That yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked about, um, you talked about that hunt where you're hunting with multiple guys and I was Mm -hmm. curious, um, just to hear you talk about that because 
you know, a guy like you, it, it seems other than a camera guy, it seems like, you know, a little bit out of your element to have, you know, two or three different tags all in the same camp or, or maybe it's not, but I'm just, yeah. I'm just curious, um, you know, tactics that you use to make sure that everyone's successful when you're hunting in a, in a big camp. And it's, it's purely selfish because, you know, we've done this for three or four or five years where we go, uh, hunt Nevada with a group of guys and, and, and it can be right. tricky. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, there's multiple hunts on this DVD where, um, where I, I had other, you know, multiple tags in camp and I'm talking, you know, three tags in camp and, and it can be tricky. Um, and that's where, you know, your relationships with your hunting partners really come into play. Cause I've, I've hunted with some guys that, um, you know, in years past, none of this is recent, um, more like decades past, uh, where, you know, there's a lot of jealousy when one guy would tag out or there would be, um, you know, let's just say it wasn't harmonious when you're out there in your glass and, and, it, and, um, you know, becomes an issue on who gets the stock. So we, I've always with my hunting partners had a pretty kind of standing, um, deal where if you whoever spots it stocks it or has the first right of refusal on the stock and so like i when i hunted up there with cody uh in nevada um there was like that first buck on opening day if i remember correctly i glassed that one up but i let him stock it it just wasn't you know i i shot quite a few bucks even with my stick bow at that point and and uh this was you know he hadn't he hadn't taken a mule deer with the stick bow and it was in a great position for a stock. And so I was just like, Hey, you want to go for it? And he's like, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. So he went down and stalked that one. And then he ended up glassing up the biggest buck of the trip. And neither one of us at this point in time had filled our tags and it was halfway through the trip and it was his, his deal, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so he went on that stock and, and then the next day I ended up, you know, glassing up a, uh, um, a trio of nice bucks and, and I went down there and was able to put it together. Um, and with, in Colorado, I've been hunting this one spot with my buddy, Justin, and more recently with Kendall and, and it works out great with, uh, with Justin because Justin's after that top end, you know, kind of Boone and Crockett class deer. And there's just not that many of them. And he is not, you know, he doesn't even think twice about the deer that I'm willing to go stalk. So, it gives me a ton of opportunity. Um, now with Kendall along, Kendall and I are vying for more of a similar, um, you know, age class or quality of deer. And, and, uh, we, you know, we, the way we've solved it, we always on opening morning, we're all three of us sitting in the same spot, you know, glass in the same basin. But, um, you know, and Kendall opening morning last year spotted a one heck of a buck. Um, and he, went after that one. Um, but he ended up spending most of his time hunting, you know, areas where we weren't hunting the same spots. We're able to disperse pretty well, but again, we go back to that same deal where whoever spots it stocks it. And, and if they're, you know, I don't, I don't know that we've run into the situation specifically, but I think that if we were on top of a ridge and you know, we glassed up a 160 class buck and it's all three of us, Kendall, Justin, and I, and this thing's like one of those where it's bedded right below the base of a cliff. Those guys are going to be like South go for it yeah. because, um, 
there's plenty of instances where I've, you know, we've glassed up or I've glassed up a buck and, and it's just like, Hey guys, I can't get to that deer. It's just not in a good position for a stick bow, but you can get 50 yards from it and you could make a shot with a compound. In fact, we had, we were hunting with another guy a number of years ago up there and, uh, in same, that same, the exact scenario happened. I, I glassed up a couple of really nice bucks. They were bedded below there's some rim rock and it was hard to tell from our perspective, you know, when we got up to the edge of that rim rock, are the deer going to be in stick bow range? And so, um, the guy, other guy that was with Justin and I, we together went on the stock. We both got up to the edge. I peeked over and it was like, 42 yards to these bucks and i told the guy i was like hey i can't make that shot from here if you want to shoot him go ahead and he ended up tagging a nice four by four it was probably 27 inches wide or something really nice buck um actually that was from that year <laughs> that year where uh the the opening seat on the intro that that one that the buck jumps a string and i and the arrows in slow motion <laughs> spoiler alert here yeah. remember that one <laughs> yeah that oh dude that was such a nice buck and that was like my one opportunity of the trip and it's a good thing that buck jumped the string because i would have uh, my shot was high anyway yeah. um but it only added insult to injury to you know replay that shot in slow motion see that thing <laughs> go ninja on me and and do the matrix and duck out of the way but that was a beautiful four by five that deer yeah no, that's, you make some really good points. Um, and, and I think the first and foremost one is, is choosing your partners wisely. Um, yeah, you know, go, going on a 10 day backcountry archery hunt, all kind of in the same camp or whatever with someone that you just met, um, or that you've never hunted with or don't know extremely well might not be, uh, the best time to find, <laughs> to find out what type of hunter they are. Right. Um, yeah, and that's that's interesting too. The point you make with the trad and the compound, and it's it, it's actually probably a pretty good relationship, um, you know, because you, you're being so, you have to be so selective with your stocks, and that that's another point that I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, you you watch these DVDs that you put out, and you know, it, it seems like to the to the viewer, it almost seems like every stock that you make, you get within, you know, seven yards or whatever. What I'm curious is how many, how many stocks or how many opportunities, quote unquote opportunities, meaning, you know, a buck bedded that you could make a play on, do you pass or move on from to get to those, um, you know, pinnacle stocks that you make? Yeah, quite a few, you know, um, I mean, it might be, and it really depends and I'd have to really put some thought into it, but be, you know, the differences between Colorado and Nevada, but I try to focus on country that right out the gate puts me in an advantage. So it's got lots of micro topography, lots of, you know, broken country or little undulations or, or vegetation or boulders or what have you um, that are going to give me the opportunity to put something between me and the deer to block its view of me so that I can approach approach from a angle or a position that's undetected. And, you know, your stock may start out, you know, where you're in full view, but when you're getting in, you know, sub 400 yards and you're, you know, maybe you're coming over the backside of a ridge or, or you have a major obstacle, maybe that thing is bedded at the, at the base of some rim rock. But I mean, 
you know, it might be 10 to one on, uh, I pass on, on stock opportunities 10 times before I attempt one. And then, you know, partway through that, I might have to abort because the deer has gotten up and, and, uh, you know, gone out to feed and moved away from that, um, that last bit of cover, or it might be, uh, you know, that, um, that the deer has just gotten up and rebedded. And all of a sudden now I'm not in a position to be able to, uh, you know, to get as close as I need to, um, I, you know, I'll pass on, on giant deer that are in the wrong spot. Um, and I will, um, you know, uh, take, I'll take a, you know, a stock on a 150 class buck on passing up a stock on a 180 class buck yeah. if it's the, the position. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, poor, poor positions of bucks, I, I heard a story from someone that may or may not have hunted with you before. And I'm, and I, I hope I'm remembering it right. Um, but is it true that you have glassed up extremely large groups of bucks, say 20 or 25 group, uh, bucks in a group and per- <laughs> And purposely walked through them to break them up and split them into smaller groups. <laughs> that may or may not have happened on occasion. <laughs> if you get too many eyeballs and in, they're hanging in a basin that, you know, you just like they're content just to hang out there and they're not in a good position anyway. I mean, if, make no mistake about it. If there are bucks that are, um, you know, a group of, let's say 25 bucks for argument's sake. And they're, you know, in a position that are stockable, then I'll go stock them. I'm not afraid of, you know, putting, pitting my skills against that many eyeballs. But by the same token, if, you know, there's uh, like, there's a basin up there in Colorado that, um, that is really challenging from, um, from a logistic standpoint, it's a, kind of a, um, amphitheater shaped bowl and the deer love hanging out in there. <laughs> and, um, you have to have them that they really have to cooperate in order to be able to make a stock possible. And of course, most of the time they're not, you know? Um, and so in a situation like that, yeah, I might go, um, you know, try to push them out of the head of that base and break them <laughs> up or something like that, just to give myself something to do later, you know, a couple of days down the road. I mean, it's not like they're going to be, you know, later that afternoon, they're going to, you know, just trotted a hundred or 200 yards down the hill and they'll have a stock at them. Then it's, yeah. you know, that you go back in there a couple of days later when they start filtering back in. And, and then, uh, at that point, um, you know, you, you might get lucky and, and, uh, get a better opportunity as they're starting to come back in, but there's nothing more frustrating than sitting there, you know, for a week watching a huge group of bucks that are just hanging in areas where you, where you just can't get on them. Yeah. Well, I, I pictured it happening just like that. I just picture you walking through this base and throwing your hands right, up like, right. like scattering a, a herd of cattle, but yeah, not, not exactly like that, but it's kind of like, you know, playing pool. Yeah. You got, you got to break the ball. Somebody's right? got to break. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh man. Indeed. It may not be. I mean, it depends too on the hunting pressure. So if you're in an area where the animals are pretty high strung, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. But some of these areas where you're back in their ways and, and uh, the deer, 
you know, are a little more relaxed than something like that. You may be able to get away with and, and still have opportunities in the next over the next few days. But a lot of times, man, those deer just get too much hunting pressure. Um, and, and so that would not be a tactic I would employ, you know, in an area where the deer are, are more wired, like say, for instance, in Nevada, where we hunt there, yeah. um, that, uh, those deer, yeah, they don't tolerate a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, I can just, I can just see or uh, hear all the Utah guys that road hunt right now, listening, just going, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Uh-huh. You would never, that dude smoking yeah, crack. What's he talking about? <laughs> Um, you know, and, and you kind of, uh, inadvertently hinted to this, but I, I just want to touch on, um, you know, you mentioned certain basins and certain units and it, it's, it's clear. And, and I would assume looking at some of your footage, I would assume you're kind of hunting the same units year after year, or you've hunted them multiple years. Um, yeah. I, you know, um, from there are guys that that like to hunt new areas every year and new states and and new units and what have you and i've done that um where i've bounced around some but um i you know particularly when you're limiting yourself in your shot distance with the stick bow it, it i think this becomes even more critical where you have intimate knowledge it's to me it'd be like you know if you are hunting um, a different unit every year, then it's almost like you're hunting a different species every year. Um, and the more familiar, you know, you can only not only become with the species, but with an area, the, the more you're stacking the deck in your favor. And that's really why one of the reasons why I really, um, you know, enjoy hunting the same place. And it's not, to me, it's not like going to eat at the same restaurant time after time or listening to the same song on the radio time after time. I mean, I get to know, you know, the area that I'm hunting, um, much better the second year, even better the third year, you know, in, in the fourth year I'm finding, you know, beds and escape routes and, and habits, the way the deer like to move through, you know, the area and, um, I'm just becoming more and more familiar with it. And then it also starts to come kind of feel like a homecoming, something that I <laughs> am anticipating each year. And it's not just that it's not just opening day. Um, and I've got a tag it's opening day and I'm going back to visit my best friend, yeah. you know? And, and so I kind of get that kind of sentimental attachment to these spots and, and, you know, combine that with the, I, I'm, somewhat of a specialist with mule deer and that I focused a lot of my effort over the last 30 years exclusively on mule deer. And I, I just love spot and stock hunting. I love hunting mule deer and, and, uh, you know, these areas that I've been able to hunt, um, repeatedly over the last, you know, well, I think I've been hunting Nevada for 20, about 20 years now. And I've probably hunted, um, I would say at least 15 of those 20 years, if not 16 of those 20 years where I've had tags. And, and, uh, I think I've only not hunted the same spot twice while I've had tags in Nevada, three times while I've had tags in Nevada, where I hunted different units. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in there getting to know, um, this, uh, this area. And so a lot invested and, you know, I could, I could tell you right now, I mean, I've never scouted it. Um, 
but I could tell you right now, I could get on Google Earth and say, dude, if you go right here, there's a really good chance there's a buck bedded under this tree right now, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, that I, I've, I get a lot of pleasure out of that. And yet I'm still discovering and um, discovering new things about that area every year. And the deer move through there a little bit different from year to year. And I'm discovering new bedding areas. And there, there are areas, despite that many years, that I haven't, you know, actually physically stepped foot in. Maybe I glassed it or maybe it's off the end of a finger ridge that, um, that I haven't been on before. And I'm still learning. Um, so, yeah, there's a I, – I strongly believe that if – you can, you know, if you can hunt a unit that the tags are more accessible, then you're going to be, you know, even if it's not as good of a unit, you're going to be a lot more successful over the long run than if you, you know, bank points for five years or 10 years and hunt a premium unit that has a higher population of animals. Um, I just think that, you know, you get, you spend the time, you get to know the animals, um, then you're, you're going to, uh, you're going to be more successful over the long haul. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I saw that, uh, payoff for me last year when I went back and killed that, that deer in mm -hmm. the same unit, you know, that we're heading to. And, uh, right. you know, that buck bedded in a spot where I had literally stood right where I knew I was going to walk through exactly where I knew I was going to walk through multiple times over the years. And I knew exactly what the backside of that peak looked like. I knew exactly, mm -hmm. you know, where I needed to drop my boots. I knew exactly what it was going to look like yep. when I crested over and, and looked down on him. And, you know, and so it, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it sure eliminates a lot of the variables. Yeah. And it gives you a lot more confidence too, so that, you know, you know, when you're leaving on that stock, exactly what you need to do. Yep. Um, and then for me, confidence, there's so much to it. Um, because when you're confident, you're going to be more careful. You know, if you get over and, and uh, you don't really know or don't have a, a, a more certain feeling of what the outcome is, then maybe you're moving a little faster than you should, or maybe you're not taking as much care versus if you, um, you know, you know what's going on or you, you highly anticipate, you know, the outcome of it, then, uh, you know, I'm going to go through and do everything right, you know, um, versus if, you know, you're going like, okay, I'm going over here on a hope, you know, yeah. <laughs> been there. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. that, that's kind of a good transition. I just wanted to touch on maybe what uh, you thought were, were common mistakes, um, that maybe specifically trad bow hunters will make. Um, well, speaking from experience, I can say not, picking a spot, <laughs> you know, on the actual draw and shot, you know, just shooting at the whole animal. I think that's one really big difference between shooting a compound and shooting a stick bow um, is that you have a sight pin. I mean, you can certainly just put the sight pin on the animal and touch off, but you at least have a reference point. Whereas when you're pulling back with a stick bow, man, I mean, you can be looking at the whole animal versus looking at a tiny spot and it's going to be um that it makes such a difference when it actually comes to the shot as far as like uh as far as the stock um or leading up to the stock i would say 
you know, probably maybe not knowing when you should go and when you should pass on a stock. Um, and that comes with mostly is going to be coming with a lot of experience, you know, on just stocking stuff and blowing them out and then really being uh, kind of retrospectful and looking at, okay, why didn't this work? You know, and, and uh, I mean, maybe come, it may be totally apparent, but it, it you, you may have to look hard um, at what the difference is and, and uh, between, you know, a, a small mistake that you made and, and or, you know, catching that. So, um, yeah, well, there's, uh, I, I know as far as that goes, you know, I, I, I just picture a young hunter and it's, it's tough as a young hunter, um, mm-hmm. to be honest with yourself, you know, about yeah. why, about why it didn't work or, you know, the right. fact that you chose to approach from this angle instead of, you know, putting in the extra work to go up around the peak and, and come down on top, like you kind of knew you were supposed to, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I just picture that transition for myself of, um, you know, uh, blatantly just doing those things and not being honest with myself to the point where now I'm like, okay, like, yep, made that mistake before. And I know it's a mistake and, you know, I'm not, right. gonna, I'm not going to do that anymore. But Yeah. I mean, what, so what I do to me, planning your stocking route is like, the one of the highlights for me of of uh, bow hunting, um, or at least mule deer hunting, um, I will, uh, you know, when, when I glass up an animal, the very first thing I'm looking at is, um, or when I glass up an animal that that I did that I think I've got a, a you know a halfway decent chance of making a stock, I'm immediately looking at the hillside and how could I approach undetected on that animal? And my first course is always looking above it. Um, and cause that's the direction I want to approach from. Um, because as you're coming down vegetation in front of you is going to be easier to, it's going to hide you better than if you're coming from below that vegetation is not going to hide you as well. And also I can sit on my butt and I could scoot down if I need to, to stay lower and I've got gravity working for me. So I'm not having to, you know, propel myself uphill. Instead, I'm able to, you know, lower, lift my body, you know, scoot downhill a little bit, lower my body, move my legs out in front of me again, and kind of repeat that with minimal effort versus if I was coming, trying to approach from below. Plus, you know, the thermals are, um, are typically an issue, you know, coming from below, um, side hill, you know, is to me a second choice from, from going uphill. Uh, but, um, I'm always looking for that uphill approach in the beginning and, and okay, how can I get from where I'm at right now around behind or up and around behind them, you know, and and then, uh, that, that approach from above. And I think that probably a lot of beginning bow hunters, um, you know, maybe aren't, aren't as good at picking out that those routes. Cause there's, there's been a lot of times when I've looked at an animal and just like, there's no way, you know, I, there's no way that I could get on them. And then I start really analyzing the terrain and then you're looking, you know, 
initially, if you don't see a way to get on them, then start really looking, looking for minor depressions, little little creek bottoms or, or just where the water would run off, you know, say the side of a ridge. If there's a snowpack above it, then eventually over thousands of years, it's going to carve, you know, a spot where it's a little bit deeper. And it doesn't have to be anything but maybe a foot deep, you know, to be able to to hide you. And maybe there's a boulder or some some bushes or whatever and and to be able to pick up on those subtle nuances in the terrain um there's been a number of times like that buck that i that i shot in the last sequence of the of the film i didn't you know in my first initial look at that i didn't think that i could get on that deer um and i had to cross through the bottom of this basin in plain view of the deer for i i had to walk probably 300 yards um, within plain sight of them, but I was at one end of the basin, the deer were at the other end of the basin. Um, and I, and I figured, okay, if I walk slow enough, um, then they're not going to pick up on that movement at, I don't know, it was probably 500 yards away, or maybe it was even further than that. And I felt like, you know, this was, it was a legitimate enough chance that I was willing to take blowing them out. Um, we were getting near the end of the hunt. There was one day, you know, after that day to hunt. And, um, I just, you know, knowing the deer in Colorado versus the deer in Nevada, maybe I wouldn't have been able to get away with it in Nevada. Um, but you know, it was a, a somewhat of a calculated gamble and it wasn't as high a percentage as what I typically like to have, but I, I figured, man, you know, I can, I, I think I can make this happen. And, uh, and that was enough to, uh, you know, to embark on the stock and, and, uh, you know, I unfortunately blew the first shot <laughs> on that buck, but, you know, did, uh, did pull it off there. So. Yeah. That's, it's interesting on that stock, how that buck, uh, that buck basically just, he almost runs closer to you, doesn't he? A little bit, maybe yeah, five no, yards he did, closer. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. He was just slightly quartering into me when I shot at him on the first arrow, and I don't know what happened. I had a couple of of shots on that trip where I shot way left of where I was aiming, and uh, on that first shot on that buck, I I shot way left, and um, and that deer actually was already pointed somewhat in my direction, and he ran towards me, and it went from like a twenty five yard shot to sub fifteen yards on that follow up shot. It's always nice. And, yeah, and fortunately, man, I put it right where I needed to on that second arrow, and he didn't go very far at all. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, the the point you make about being able to read the read the mountain, basically read the mountain from the other side of the of the canyon is, it's it is one of the hardest things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's reading it to to go over and make your stock, or reading it and knowing that you can come down, like you said, through a you know just a a slight depression there or man and it's I, I i don't know i i don't know how you do it other than just being over there you know right. when, when we look across canyons where where we're going to go hunt nevada we can just say well i've been there and i actually know that you can there's a slight depression there or whatever it's it, it's one of the hardest things do you um do you nowadays do you ever take pictures uh with your cell phone of the kind of just the general layout of the ridge or whatever mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I think that's really important um, and probably an underused uh, method. I used to draw, you know, pictures on a you know piece of paper with landmarks because um, there's been so many times when I've 
made a stock and and uh, got over there and been totally disoriented um, and couldn't you know figure out where the heck the multiple times you know in Colorado where I've I'm hunting this rim rock kind of country and got on the wrong piece of rim rock and been sneaking along. <laughs> you know, look, peeking over, peeking over, peeking over. And then I look 150 yards away at this deer standing there, the buck that I was supposed to have been stalking, stand there watching me going, what on earth is that dude doing? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a classic example just on this DVD here. I was, uh, you know, I snuck down. Wes is like, dude, it's one more, one more rim rock down. I'm like, no, no, it's this one right here. And I sneak over the edge, look over and it's like, yeah, Wes, you're right. It's one more down. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, you got to be able to laugh at yourself, you know, in situations like that. And yeah, I mean, in life in general, it's a lot easier to, if you just don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, no. And that's, but, but those, those pictures, like you said, it really isn't underutilized. Um, you know, I used mm-hmm. it. I, I don't know if, um, I, I killed a, a big, uh, well, he was wide. He wasn't, didn't score well, but he was a velvet stag on a rifle hunt in Utah a couple of years ago. And, uh, that's, that's how we killed that buck, man. If I be, because, you know, you think like, well, how am I going to be able to tell once I'm over there, but you can look at that picture and there's a prominent rock or a dead tree or a slightly discolored tree. And you can pick that out when you're over on the, on the hillside, you know, you just need to, right. to pick up the right thing, but yeah, that's the, I think that's a good point. Um, yeah. One thing that, um, you know, that goes with, uh, pretty hard to, to not notice on these, some of these hunts that are on this, this, uh, DVD is, uh, your pack animals that you use. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and, and me being a, a diehard llama guy, um, I'm just curious, you know, from someone that's clearly used uh, goats and llamas, just kind of the the general breakdown and and kind of the pros and cons list of uh, hunting with goats and hunting with llamas. Sure. So first, let's start out with horses because uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just go there, right? Because uh, that that's obviously the most popular um, way. And and I've never had my own horses um, and used my own horses or even rented horses that stayed with me in camp. So I can't speak to maintaining you know horses through a week-long hunt um but i but i've ridden them plenty of times you know, where i've hired a packer and packed in that way and i think that you know from a logistical standpoint there's a lot of sense going that route just from um you know that you pay somebody yeah it's kind of painful because it's typically more expensive to get packed in that way but, and then you get dropped. And then when you shoot something, you hope that, you know, if you shoot something early, you hope that the packer schedule is, is flexible enough that they're able to come in, you know, relatively quickly and pick your animal up for you, um, or, and, or pick up your animal and haul you out, um, depending on if you're hunting by yourself or, or, uh, what have you, but, um, that, that, you know, is a pretty, pretty nice scenario when you can do that. Um, I, I have a ton of respect, a healthy respect for horses as far as from a danger standpoint, either getting kicked, stepped on, or, um, a lot of them are really squirrely and, you know, will uh, you'll get some wrecks or, uh, you know, hor- I've, I've had pack horses, um, tumble off the trail and go rolling down, 
um, you know, down the mountain and, and, uh, my buddy's bow was strapped onto the top of that particular pack horse. And fortunately it survived that experience, but, um, horses are definitely not my first choice from, uh, just from like dealing with animals kind of perspective is probably my last choice, but there is definitely a convenience factor there. Um, transitioning to llamas. I, I owned llamas back in, I want to say I, I bought my first llamas in 1996 and I literally bought them at a want out of the newspaper, out of a want ad and they were not pack llamas. They were, you know, there was four llamas, it was a female, um, a male and their two offspring. And so the two offspring were a year old and two years old. And then the, the male was like 15 or 16. So he was getting up there in llama years and had never worn, none of them had ever worn a pack before. And, uh, so I, um, I bought some, uh, llama pack saddles and, and, um, you know, trained them how bought a book on this is before the internet or at least before i knew about the internet and i bought a, a book on training llamas and and uh, so that was my introduction to llama packing and actually used those guys for a handful of years and expanded my herd and i eventually had six pack llamas that all of them that i trained and and all of them that i bought out of the newspaper that were unproven you know unproven uh, bloodlines and some of them worked out great. Some of them didn't. And, um, that was, uh, you know, then I started doing a lot more mule deer stuff out of state where I was flying, you know, back to Colorado. And then there's a couple of years where I didn't use them. So I ended up selling them, but so more recently now I've started using llamas again. Um, I, I think maybe three years ago was the first time that we, uh, that we rented them and we, uh, we got a couple llamas from, uh, from you and use those. Um, I, from a convenient standpoint, they're super easy to use, man. I mean, um, Oh, I take that back in 2007. Um, we rented some also with, uh, the guys from the Sitka, uh, when the Sitka just started, uh, I went on a hunt with Jason and Jonathan, um, they're from Sitka and, and, uh, we rented some in Colorado, uh, that we had, you know, good experience with and, um, but more recently using yours there, um, you know, geez, they're just so easy to deal with. They're, you know, real easy temperament. They're not spooky for the most part, like, uh, like horses are where, you know, you'll, I mean, occasionally you'll get like something that, um, say a grouse explodes, you know, on the trail or something and, and they may jump in an alarm, but they don't go running back to the trailhead, you know, right. spooked like a mule would or a horse might. Um, so there's, uh, certainly, um, from an ease of use stamp, ease of use standpoint, um, I think they're probably the easiest. Uh, I've, you know, used pack goats. Um, goats have such personalities. It's they they can be kind of interesting, um, from that standpoint in that, uh, you know, they're a llama. Yeah. They all have their individual personalities as well, but they're not nearly as apparent as a, as a goat in my experience, yeah. um, where you get kind of a rambunctious goat, man. And it can, I mean, it can be funny in the, for the first little while. And then 
you're all you're thinking about is barbecue and that thing when you get to camp. <laughs> we had one the one year that we rented goats and it was just like it was its first year on the trail and this thing was all full of piss and vinegar. It was a young, you know, young uh, stud and I mean, it was kind of funny watching them at times, you know, there'd be one goat in particular that this thing would tee off on that. The one goat would turn and look the other way. And if this guy was anywhere, T-bone. Yep, exactly. Just lay right into this thing and it's just launch him with, you know, pack and panniers on and all. Um, but after a while it got super annoying. So we just started loading that guy heavier and heavier every time that we had to pack with him just to kind of, take some of that spunk out of him. Um, and also just, it was like, he was so irritating that we wanted to punish him. So that was the best way we figured we could do it was by putting more weight on his back. <laughs> yeah, there's, there really is, you know, I, I actually haven't had pack goats, but I've, I've raised a herd of goats, a pretty good sized uh -huh. herd of goats and for a few years and I'm, I'm, I'm out of that business now, but, um, you're right. They're just such a, they're such a pecking order, you know, that yeah. they, they, they're always establishing it. And if they don't see each other, you know, the crazy thing is like, you could pull two goats that have known each other their whole lives yep. and pull them out and put them back mm -hmm. together. And they've got to reestablish the pecking order. And the way, yeah. that, the way that goats do that is they, they rear up and butt heads and, and T-bone right. each other. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just goats being goats, but yeah, I, I was curious too. um, talk briefly about, you know, when you take those goats up into the high country and especially if it gets into September, what do you, uh, what precautions do you have to take for, you know, shelter and the weather, or do you worry about that where they don't have the, you know, the fibers like a llama does? So we had, um, we, I want to say we had some, uh, some jackets for oh. them. Um, we, that year that we brought them up, we actually got, uh, not right where we were at, but uh, a peak off in the distance that was a little bit higher than us, got some snow and we got some nasty weather. Um, I mean, the, the guy that we rented them from, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, but, I've only uh, I've only got like ten listeners, so you're probably yeah, safe. All right, good deal. Well, hopefully there's not eleven, and he's one of them, <laughs> the one, right? But uh, he's like, oh yeah, you know, if it rains, just uh, you know, take the this tea, this uh, tarp, and he sent us up there with a tarp and tied off some trees and give them the you know a spot where they can hunker down under the tarp. And it's like, dude, we're going above timberline. We, we yeah. don't have any camps that are, you know, anywhere near any trees. And sure enough, I mean, we got, we got a, um, like a 24 hour period where it rained almost the whole time. And it was not a 70 degree rain. It was like probably a 35 degree rain. And I, I felt really bad, but there was nothing we could do. I mean, it was blowing rain, cold, and uh, they they did fine, you know. None of them, uh, at least none of, to my knowledge, contracted pneumonia or anything. But yeah. oh, dude, this is a funny story. I completely forgot about this one. So we had one goat that kept feigning lame. So he would start like hobbling on one of his front feet. And so the the last day we were in, we you know loaded them all up the last morning. So we were. We had like, we were going out a different trailhead than when we came in. I want to say we probably were 
if we weren't 15 miles back in, we were 14. I mean, we were a <laughs> long ways back in there. And so we loaded the goats up. We distributed the weight. We had six of them. So we distributed all the weight between them. And uh, we loaded them down and we started going. And we weren't a quarter mile out of camp. And West goes, dude, that, that one goat's hobbling. And I look back behind me and sure enough, man, this goat's doing the old limp on his front leg, right? Every step he's kind of hobbling along like this. So, oh man. So we, we adjusted his load first to see if that would do it. Didn't do it. So he lightened his load a little bit, still didn't do it. So then we pulled his panniers off, distributed the weight between all the other um, goats there. And uh, he's totally fine. (laughs) You know, so we go a couple miles like this. And then we're like, okay, he's doing fine. We'll put some weight back on him. We put some weight back on him. And, uh, and then we go about a hundred yards and I look back and he's hobbling again. But then I'm like, wait a second, that SOB, he's gimping on the other leg. He forgot which leg he was faking it on. And he started going gimpy on the other one. I'm just like, dude, no way are you pulling this one off, man. And, uh, that, that son of a gun was faking it, man. So we just like, forget it, dude. We, so that cold we after that, cause we had totally, we had stopped. We had taken all this valuable time to redistribute the weight, reweigh all these goat panniers, you know, putting his stuff into other goats. And, and it's like, there's no way. So after a while he gave up on the hobbling. Cause I think it realized it took too much energy to hobble. And so he was fine. It was like that total Turkey, man. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I can't even remember where we were at before I went off on that tangent. No, that you're... was a pretty funny story. <laughs> yeah. No, you're you you pretty much summed it up though as far as is uh, how I understand it. Um you know those those goats super personality rich. Um you know they're uh they're they're probably even easier to handle as far as the hiking on the trail. Mm-hmm. I I would guess because you know they they get those goats when they're a week old. And they bottle yeah. feed them for five or six weeks after that. And they, they completely latch on to any, basically any human. Once you have a bottle, right. bottle fed goat, they just love to be around you. Um, yep. and, you know, so I'm guessing you strap those packs on and start hiking up the trail and, uh, and, you know, and here they come behind you and, and it's comical and you kind of get up there. We, that, what, what you mentioned about the weather, that was basically the reason, um, that and, um, and the fact that that they are bottle fed, um, what did you guys do when you would leave camp? Um, were they coming with you, or were you lining them out? Or so standard goat etiquette is you take them with you, yeah. um, and that you know is what they're going to tell you if you rent pack goats. And and uh, there may or may not have been a time or two when they were left in camp. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, um, you know, and we didn't have any problems doing that, but they do say that they want you to bring them with you. Um, and I, I had a buddy that, that raised pack goats and, and geez, I mean, he had like 60 or 80 goats. I mean, he had a serious investment in, uh, you know, in pack goats and, and he has told me that on numbers of occasions, he's, you know, come around the corner has been a mule deer, you know, or elk or whatever, um, you know, within shooting range, within stick bow shooting range and the deer will, you know, lift its head up and look and see the goats and 
be relaxed and go back to feeding or even in some instances come closer. Um, so apparently, you know, the, the presence of those four-legged animals, uh, you know, has really relaxed them. And I will say that, um, you know, if you do use pack goats, pay attention to, to them. They have such good eyesight that, yeah. you know, if you see one of them stop and they're staring in some direction, most of the time they're going to pick up animals, game animals before you do. And, uh, so if you're savvy to that and you're watching your goats, then, uh, then, you know, they may very well pick up a bear or, a, or an elk or a deer or something before you see it. And, and I have had instances where they, you know, they saw animals that I didn't see. Yeah. Um, and then another note on, uh, on pack goats is that the reason, so we were, you know, we were pretty committed to, to using them again that following year, but I got a call from uh, the local game warden um, sometime in the off season. And he's like, Hey, I know that you're back up there in this unit. And uh, you know, we've got sheep in that unit and, and, you know, we've, we've got literally millions of dollars invested in getting this herd established and, and uh, all that. And I just prefer big horn sheep, did. right? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. And he said, you know, I just preferred if you guys, you know, didn't uh, bring sheep back up in there. And, and that's a really um, kind of hot topic among the goat packers is that, you know, their, their claim is that there's been zero yeah. documented cases of, uh, I don't know if it's tuberculosis or exactly what it is that get, you know, could conceivably be transmitted from their pack goats to wild sheep. Um, and the interesting thing is, and this is a strong argument from their perspective, you know, they can, a, a sheep herder can graze domestic sheep in that same environment <laughs> and there's nothing, you know, and they, and I am certain like, you know, Nevada was that maybe eight, seven, eight, nine years ago lost, um, Yep. their herd of uh, of uh, bighorn sheep pretty much through the East Humboldts and the Ruby Mountains, um, as well as their mountain goats. In one fell swoop, they lost over 90% of their uh, bighorn sheep because of um, uh, they, that they contracted pneumonia. And I'm sure it was passed from, you know, and this is, you know, me just speaking. I, I know that Gray's... Um, uh, domestic sheep in that area. Yeah. And I'm sure that it was passed from domestic sheep to those wild sheep, but it just wiped them out, man. I mean, I, I think that they found, I want to say it was nine rams over 190 inches that were dead from pneumonia up there. Um, and you think about one, you know, uh, one of those tags going at auction um, and the amount of, of just of revenue, con you know, conceivably that could have been raised from those, uh, those nine rams and for conservation. I mean, you talk about a total disaster. Um, but uh, so basically we respected that game warden's wishes. And, and then that's when we transitioned from pack goats to llamas and, and uh so that's uh, kind of been the route that we went, but plus <laughs> with that one goat, man, it kind of turned us off to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. 
So oh, man, what a character. I mean, when you're looking at it, those pack oats can carry a decent amount, you know, 35, 40 pounds, and, which is about half as much of a, as a llama will carry. But if you then think about you're dealing with twice as many personalities um, as you are with a llama, and then also it's like, you know, the, the personality 10x versus a llama, then I, then you're doubling the amount of personalities and they're just that much stronger. It's to, to us, it, the llamas really made sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. For, <clears throat> for the way that we hunt and, and, and I, which I assume is pretty similar to the way you hunt. Um, it just, it made perfect sense. You know, they, they can go, you know, back to back days without water, um, especially if they're not getting, uh, worked and hiked. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they basically you st stake out a llama and you graze them. Um, yeah, so, so many things, you know, they have less of a tendency to kind of come unglued on a trailhead, um, like a horse right. might. So anyway, I was just, yeah, and I've had them, you know, they're, they're really good about putting out on a lead line and staking them out. And then, um, you know, and, and they learn about, about that, about stepping over and, yeah. and then, you know, unwinding themselves if they get wound around a tree or it's crazy you know, standing huh? there. Yeah. Or standing there calmly, you know, and waiting for you yeah. to come and unwind them versus flipping out like a horse or a yeah. mule, you know, would. Um, so just, I mean, I really appreciate their calmer demeanor. Um, to me, that just kind of fits more my personality and my style. Yeah. Yeah, that may be the most interesting thing I've seen with them is what you're talking about. Um, and I've seen it, you know, at this point, I've seen it dozens and dozens and dozens of times where they'll uh, be staked out, like you're saying, and they'll get that rope wrapped around their foot. And you can see them all of a sudden they, they move and it tightens up and they and mm -hmm. they, they usually just pause. And you can almost see right. them thinking it through and they'll, they'll back up on it a couple times usually until they figure out like, oh, okay. I just got to go this way and it loosens it up and, and it sounds simple, but a horse doesn't have that. <laughs> right. A horse no. is just like you said, you know, it's like they, snakes got my foot. Yep. Ah! Ah! And yeah. yeah. And, and I'm so big, I can just pull out of any situation and that's seems to be what they do. But anyway. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting, man. Um, this has been, this has been awesome. Let me, let me run you through, uh, just a couple, couple little fire on questions and then, sure. uh, just kind of wrap up with how people can find you and, and the DVD and everything like that. So, um, I don't even want to ask this because I already know that everyone knows the answer, but, um, <laughs> well, let me ask you, elk, mule deer, or antelope. And as soon as you say mule deer, I want to ask you, um, velvet or hard horned mule deer? What do you prefer? Sure. Okay. So, um, I, I haven't heard of those other species. Are they in <laughs> Africa or something? Yeah. They're exotics <laughs> down in Texas. Right. Right. The high fence. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Mule deer, the no brainer velvet, um, over hard horned. And I'll tell you why. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I love hunting up in the Alpine, um, you know, above timberline and, the mule deer when they're in velvet will hang up there above tree line where the, when their antler is a little more tender rather than diving into thicker cover. I mean, they still will drop into, you know, some of the jack pines and stuff and bed and, and, uh, heavier cover on occasion. But for the most part, when they're in velvet, they're more likely to bed in areas that are conducive to stalking with the bow versus once they shed, they're dropping, you know, dropping down into the timber and into thicker cover. And they're more likely to, to stay in that type of uh, cover where they're harder to glass, 
and they're much harder to stock. And so uh, I'm always gunning for that opening week, um, you know, before they strip out of velvet. Yeah, they do not like that velvet uh, antler being hit or banged or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. What is what would be your dream hunt? Um, if it w- didn't involve mule deer, <laughs> then my dream hunt would probably be. Um, I've always been enamored by that country up in British Columbia, you know, back like out in the middle of nowhere. And if I could do a combination like stone sheep, uh, grizzly bear, mountain Mm -hmm. caribou or something like that, that would be pretty epic. Um, but I think my number one bucket list animal, um, you know, beyond mule deer is, uh, is mountain goat. And just cause I think that, you know, similar kind of country, um, that you might be hunting mule deer above timberline and, um, you know, spot and stalk kind of stuff. And I've been around them a number of times when I've been stalking mule deer or glassing for mule deer. And, and I can really appreciate just the, the beauty of those animals and how hardy they are. They're, they're such a cool animal. Super majestic. Yeah. Um, have you hunted, uh, mountain goats before? No, I've been building points in Nevada, um, and then I put in for them in, in Idaho. Um, but uh, no, I, I I haven't really been, you know, they're, they're one of those things that kind of occupies the back of my head, not really so much the forefront of my planning. Yeah. And if I was smart, I'd, I'd be putting money away, you know, for a, a goat hunt specifically before I, you know, before the, the country just got too gnarly for me to get up in there. But um, you know, if I hunted mule deer for the rest of my life, I wouldn't be too upset about it. And if I never got a chance to do anything else. Yeah. Um, I'm at, this is a good one for you. Cause I know you're pretty into this. Um, what's a, what's maybe your favorite backcountry food item that you're going to take this year? So, um, I'm super excited. Uh, you know, I've had a freeze dryer for probably four years now. This being my fourth season that I I'm pretty sure it's been about that length of time. Maybe it's even been five. Um, but I, I am using it a lot more this year. So in the past, some years I didn't use it at all. Um, and, but this year, for some reason, um, I, I've just gotten super excited about it. So I've got a bunch of freeze dried meals that I'm producing of my own making. And, um, I know enough that, the years that I have used it and, and I've had it up there on the mountain that, um, that just having that home cooking, um, was, I mean, I was a lot more excited. I'm one of those guys that, um, I eat more. I have a tendency to eat more at home than I do at the, on the mountain. Um, cause I get bored of what's in my backpack and then, I, you know, the food fantasy set in and I'll be hungry, but I'm just not hungry for anything I have in my pack versus the times that I've packed my own freeze dried food up there. It's like, I can't wait to get back to camp to, to eat dinner. And then I'm wishing I had packed them for lunch as well. And, um, one of the things that I've really tried to do this year, um, and I've preached this so much, but I've gotten lazy, um, is pack, making sure that my food bags aren't just replicated one after, you know, one to the the same to the (laughs) next one, to the next one, to the next one, where I, you know, I go grocery shopping and I buy the same thing for every day. And then by the third day, it's like, you don't even want to see your food bag, uh, let alone eat it. And, uh, so I'm doing a lot better job this year of mixing it up. And it's, 
it's tough. It, it, re- yeah. it really is, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to mix up the flavors of your dinner, but like what, what we find is those like breakfast and lunch are just, yeah, like, there's just, it, it's tough. And even snacks too, you know? Yeah. So I found like packing granola and powdered milk and then maybe a different kind of cereal and powdered milk and then some instant cream of wheat for one day and some instant oatmeal for another day. And then, um, you know, if you don't have the benefit of having your own freeze dryer, then doing, a, um, you know, one of the mountain house eggs, you know, the, what are they, the breakfast burrito fillings, um, you know, and then packing in a little packet of Tapatio sauce or whatever. And, uh, you know, mixing it up like that works really well for breakfasts and then lunches can be somewhat challenging, but, um, you know, if you bring a cup of soup or a couple of cup of soups for, for one lunch and then you do some uh, bagels and peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and honey one day, you know, the Justin's almond butter and those individual little servings. Also, the yum butter, um, they make uh, – it's a little bit more than an individual serving, but it's a resealable container. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those, uh-uh. but yeah, they make, yeah. So if you just get on Amazon, they sell them through Amazon. They're about oh, five or six bucks for a little, uh, a tube of it. And it essentially looks kind of like a, a toothpaste tube, but the, the spout comes off the corner, um, and you can reseal it just by putting the cap back on there. So they make, uh, you know, cashew butter, almond butter, several different flavors. there. not as many as the Justin's butter. But that works pretty slick. Um, and if you mix it up with, you know, say an almond butter, a cashew butter, um, honey to go with it on one. And then you do maybe a couple of different flavors of jam just to keep it different. And then maybe you do a plain bagel and a blueberry bagel yeah. so that the flavors are a little different. Um, then you do maybe a, an everything bagel with some salami and cheese one day and, or a couple of days, but you vary it, you know, so you're eating one of those on on your first day and the and then the repeat of that meal on the fifth day but if you do some some good menu planning like that and then uh you know, make some tuna fish wraps um on another day and then another day it's a different flavor of the flavored tuna fish packet but instead you're doing some you know whole wheat ritz crackers and you can buy those ritz crackers in a smaller sleeve so that it might be a say a dozen ritz crackers to a sleeve and then that makes it pretty handy there from a packaging standpoint. Um, but you know, those are just some different ideas. Also some, um, uh, the, the cup of soups without noodles is just the broth. Um, that's kind of nice. Like if you're up glassing, um, and it's cold in the morning, I'll bring a jet boil and, and, uh, you know, hot chocolate or hot chocolate and coffee or one of those cup of soup envelopes just to keep you warm. Um, and also just to, you know, consume some more liquids and, um, those are all, uh, you know, besides without even talking about bars. Um, and incidentally, I just posted up. So if you get on my, uh, Instagram and look back through some of the, uh, my older posts is just in the last week. Um, I posted up, a, a recipe on making some bars, um, that are really super easy to make. And they're, uh, they're pretty hearty, taste good. And there's a, you know, pretty good calorie to ounce ratio there. What is um, it? Do you know what it is? Yeah. So they're, um, far, from an ingredient standpoint, you mean, or, uh, the, ca- uh, the calorie an ounce, I, oh, I saw yeah, you actually, you, know, 
you had posted yeah, the ingredients and in the whole recipe. I, yeah, I haven't. Uh, I don't recall what the calorie per ounce ratio is um, off the top of my head, but it wouldn't be too difficult to figure that out for somebody who's interested because you can look. You know, okay, it's five co- cups of oats. It's a cup of peanut butter. It's a cup of uh, um, of coconut uh, shredded coconuts. All you need to do is look at the packaging, all your figure ratios. out the serving size there, yeah, break it out depending on you know, what, what, uh, different, cause there's a lot, you can add walnuts, you could add dried cranberries, you could add, you know, freeze dried blueberries or, um, you know, things like that. And, and then change it around. You could do some, uh, dehydrated chopped up apples or, you know, a number of things like that, that you could alter it kind of to your taste. And then also, um, you know, you could make, you could have it and make half the batch but then put, um, or just make the whole batch, but then split it into two batches and then put dried cranberries in one, dried apples in, in the other one, just there so you, you wouldn't be eating the same thing there. In fact, now that I, I mean, I'm just thinking about that and I should have done that myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> it would have been smart had I thought of that earlier. Um, but those are, you know, that type of thing, um, you know, makes it from a budget standpoint. I mean, those bars are getting stinking ridiculous yeah, you might like spend three fifty you know, two, a piece yeah two to three dollars on a bar and and then uh you know if you want a couple of them a day or even you know you got two or three 10 day hunts and and uh all that stuff mountain house meals are like nine bucks a piece now i mean what happened to the good old days when they're five and a half five fifty yeah <laughs> yeah yeah do you uh have you ever used the little uh not a big deal but those little olive oil uh packets like a serving of olive oil that you can that you can get and it's basically yeah. just a calorie booster yep yeah that and coconut oil too is another good one um so one of the things I've done with my freeze-dried meals that I'm, I'm doing myself is, uh, like, um, I've done some stir-fries, and then I've done brown rice as opposed to white rice because it's a slower-burning, lower on the glycemic index than, than white rice. And then, uh, but instead of putting water in my brown rice, I put coconut milk. So you got the fats from the coconut, and then I'll put in some curry powder as well. So it kind of, you know, instead of bland rice, now I've got a coconut curry rice mm. that i'm added to my stir fry which uh you know using uh coconut milk as opposed to water i've increased my my fat content in there and and uh then using brown rice i've lowered the glycemic index so you're not going to get that insulin spike um so there's a number of things that you know that you can think of and also i wanted to point out i'm talking about this freeze dryer and and uh so it's Harvest Right is the manufacturer, and they're out of Salt Lake City. Um, and when I bought mine, they were four thousand bucks. And now um, they, I, I saw, I got on their website the other day, and they're having a sale, and they're twenty one ninety five. So they've almost come down in half, um, and that's still a significant investment. But if you go in on it with three or four buddies. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you know, maybe 500 bucks and which is still no, you know, no small chunk of change. But if you think about the amount of freeze dried, not only the amount of money you save over buying, um, you know, buying mountain house, but you look at it from the perspective of um, the amount of food waste that a family will have. What I do with mine um, is, is, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm cooking, I'll, you know, double the recipe. 
um, and then put a bunch in the, tr- the trays. They're kind of like long, skinny cookie sheet trays. And then I'll, I'll uh, put them in the freezer. And then I can gradually fill that up with either leftovers, you know, so say you might only get one serving um, that you drop in your freeze dryer, but then you just segment it with like a little strip Mm -hmm. of cardboard or something like that from your next meal that you put in. And then uh, until you get your four trays filled, then you run it through the freeze dryer. And then all of a sudden now you've got, um, so the four trays will make about 12 meals. Um, and you might have five or six different, uh, meals that you've cooked through over the period of a couple of weeks and then just run it through your freeze dryer, package it up. And now you have a really nice variety of home cooked meals that are lower in sodium that you've got control over the ingredients. If you, um, are one of those that likes to eat organic or likes more vegetables than what mountain house will put in or a lower carbohydrate, um, percentage there in, in your food, you can really control what you're eating. And, uh, and then also of course, make it to, you know, the, the, um, specific flavors and stuff that you, that you like. Yeah. See, I knew, <clears throat> I knew you'd run with that one. Cause you're just, you're, you're pretty into that one pretty deep. Um, you know, when guys start, uh, freeze drying their own food and stuff, you, you know, that they've, they've been, mm-hmm. been through it a few times. So. Yeah. And, you know, the dehydrator is great as well. Um, the thing is with the freeze dryer is that you're removing more moisture. So you're lightening up your food even more and it rehydrates faster than a dehydrator does. But I mean, dehydrators have their place certainly as well. Um, they're a heck of a lot less expensive also, but man, it's, it's like, you know, it's a one-time investment. That sweet thing about the dehydrator or the freeze dryer, you push the button, turn it on and you walk away. And then you just check on it every once in a while to make sure, you know, that when the thing cycles, when it's done, it beeps at you and it beeps repeatedly until you, you, you flip the switch, turn it off and then, uh, pull your food out. So, I mean, it's a, it's an awesome tool. And, uh, if, you know, if you're only hunting one week a year, then yeah, maybe it's not the best investment unless you're really committed to the, you know, to the health of the food that you're eating. Um, but if you are spending, you know, three or four weeks a year hunting, then, then that's really when it starts penciling out. If you're, if you're doing that kind of backpack hunting where you're needing to eat lightweight meals. Well, and even if you're just one hunt a year, you could probably round up, you know, three or four buddies there locally or something and say, Hey, you know, or, or even if you're not in the same town, you could probably cycle it, cycle it around. And, and I, I, feel like i remember you guys saying that like this was your year to you know you guys would kind of have one guy do all of them one year for a, a group of guys and then send them yeah, or something so we did that one one year what what happened was because this this is um this freeze dryer is mine exclusively i i mean, i bought the whole thing i didn't go in on it with buddies but what did happen was um a couple of years ago during my move from california to colorado justin was really interested in it and uh so i dropped it off on one of my drives from california to colorado i just swung by his place there in utah and stuck in his garage and then that year he and his wife did a bunch of freeze drying and he cooked all you know he prepped all my meals for me in exchange for 
were borrowing it. And the plan was he and Kendall were going to kind of use it. And, but I think, you know, Kendall's so stinking busy. Um, (laughs) he, uh, (laughs) he had great, um, aspirations to do it, but I don't think he ever got to it. You know, that's now that I think of it, that's where I heard that, um, was when it was the year we were delivering llamas to Kendall to go hunt with you. And it was like, he, maybe he didn't tell you this, but it was like the night before he was going to leave. And he's, He's getting llamas from us. You know, we dropped him off at like seven, eight o'clock. I mean, it was dark almost. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, I, uh, all right, I got to get get these llamas in this pasture or whatever because I got to go back and freeze dry all the South's food. <laughs> so he still <laughs> still hadn't taken care of it. But uh, apparently you survived like, yeah, well, and he got you your he food. He probably still had to scythe in his bow and pack <laughs> all his clothes and all his gear too, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, we've South's all been food there. Was, yeah, South's food is last on the to-do list. But <laughs> Right, right, anyway. yeah. Oh, shoot. Um, well, that was a long-winded answer there, wasn't it? No, that was that was perfect. Um, that was perfect. What uh, one last thing about kind of your backpack gear, and then we'll be we'll wrap up here. Um, I'm just curious, kind of, and and I don't care if it's a hundred bucks or less, but that's maybe a good um, question to ask. Like, kind of a hundred bucks or less, or kind of that piece of gear that most guys don't think about, or you know, that one that's your favorite piece of gear, even um, that you take in the backcountry. Okay, so I'm going to give you two pieces of gear, and unfortunately, one's over 100 bucks. But if you're slick and you go to, um, you know, you're a member of REI, which actually, I wonder if Kendall sells this at, at uh, Black, Black Ovis, Ovis. But they're, yeah. So you know, spend your money there first. Not you know, necessarily just plugging Kendall's place there, but any place that you can spend money at, you know, the Go Hunt Gear Shop that's at a hunter-supported. Um, company versus a, a company that may not have the best interest of hunters at heart, you know, by all means do that whenever possible. I encourage people to, um, but my favorite, absolute favorite, uh, thing that, um, since I started using that, that, um, I, I don't leave home without is a, uh, platypus, uh, gravity water filter system. Um, it's like 11 and a half ounces for their four liter size. So you have two four liter bags. You have a dirty water bag, a clean water bag with a inline filter and a hose connecting the two. You fill up your four liter bag, you hang it in a tree and it gravity feeds down through that inline filter and into your clean water bag. And then if you are not camped near a water source, then just refill that dirty water bag again. And then seal it off and carry that dirty water bag filled back up to your camp. Um, use your four liters of clean water, and then you just plug your your hose back into that four liter of dirty water bag. And then you know within five minutes you have another um, four liters of clean water that you did not have to pump one iota to uh, to get. And I'm not a fan of the chemical. Um, the chemical filtration process just because of the flavor i don't like it um i don't like drinking my own tap water you know now that i live you know, on a city water system versus a well mm-hmm. um and uh, i'm you know i've pumped and pumped and pumped and pumped over the last 30 years 30 plus years i uh, and i just don't care for pumping water it's just such a chore yeah. um that man I, I absolutely love that uh that gravity system you can back flush it, you know, in the field so you can 
uh, you know, field service, that filter, they're not totally bomb proof. You know, you're going to um, probably go through a filter in a season if you're hunting, say, a month, you know, during, you know, the year. I always carry a backup extra cartridge with me just so that I have it um, in case I've loaded up my uh, my existing filter and it just gets so clogged up it doesn't want to work. But even then, you know, overnight, if you hang that bag, then even if it's pretty clogged, it's still going to, you know, over an eight-hour period, more often, I don't know that I've ever not had my clean water bag filled the next morning, my dirty water bag empty. So it may not, it may be a lot more than five minutes to wait, but it's, it's going to go. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. So I, I actually had a chance to get my hands on exactly what you're talking about. Um, we went on a, it was just a kind of a quote unquote granola llama hike that we did here locally with, with some really awesome people, just not hunters. Um, and we got up into a spot where we thought there would be water up on a mountain here that we uh, weren't super familiar with. And there wasn't running water. Anyway, uh, one of these uh, hikers had the exact system you're talking about. And there was just a tiny little puddle. I mean, you know, like maybe a foot or two wide uh, with, a you know, six inch deep of water, maybe if that. And it was nasty. It was dirty. And so she handed me this thing and I, you know, I'd never used it before. And it was that, it was that, uh, that simple. I mean, rolled it out, filled the dirty, uh, bag with however we could get the water in there and yep, just starts dripping through the thing. And so we, we had filtered like one, at least one, maybe one and a half clean bags, um, right there on the spot. And then, like you said, we filled up, uh, one, you know, you had head, heading back to where you're going to camp and took one, uh, more dirty bag and hung it and then woke up and there was the purest, uh, you know, clean, mm-hmm. cleanest, uh, clean water there waiting for you in the morning. So yeah, that yeah. I can attest to that. It's pretty slick. Another good, uh, another little tip on that one, um, is because, you know, if you have a pump, then you, and you have a small seep or something like that, where you don't have, you know, uh, um, an area where you can just scoop that, water bag full then bring a little plastic cup with you you know like a one cup measuring cup size cup and then use that for ladling water out of a small seep and then you know dump that into your dirty water bag Um, because sometimes you'll get to an area where the there's just such a small little puddle of water and it's level with the ground around you you don't have any drop where you can you know get that water to flow into your water bag and then you're going to need something to be able to scoop that water out to be able to put into your your dirty water bag yeah yeah and unlike you know just thinking like unlike um what you're mentioning i've used iodine tablets for years and i Mm -hmm. i'm weird i don't i don't even notice the taste and so i don't mind it but and if there's running water it's great um but in the case of stagnant or stale water um it's not not great because it it doesn't uh, pull those you know those a little bit bigger uh, whatever they are, um, whether it's the, anyway, there's, there's, there's only so much that iodine tablet will get if, uh, if mm-hmm. it's not running water. And so the problem though, is, as you're on a lot of times on my system, like I'm just pulling, putting that water right in the top of my bag. And the problem is that waters could be contaminated. You know, it could have you know, whatever microorganism there around the cap or whatever, and that can eventually work its way into the bag and still get mm-hmm. you. 
or whatever, uh, right. you know, it, it's there. And so in this case, you're taking it from completely contaminated, potentially contaminated water, and then it's a completely separate uh, bag that it goes to by the time it's filtered through. So, Right, right. Cool. Um, okay, where, uh, so I'll get, get out of your hair here, but um, so we got, Stalkers in the backcountry, you're calling it return to the backcountry, right? This yep. this evening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I noticed one thing on that is you. Uh, that's kind of cool. Is you're offering you? Did you go ahead and get the USB option too for like the yeah. extra five yep. bucks or whatever? Yeah, I think that's smart. Yeah. So, so yeah, what I did this year differently um, is you know the further along we get down the road of technology advancements the more and more people you know don't have dvd players in their house anymore and <laughs> crazy that's and, crazy to think <laughs> yeah and yet at the same time i'm catering to you know an older crowd also that probably still is trying to figure out how to work their dvd player right and uh so my parents <laughs> Yeah. yeah uh-huh. And then also and a lot of that same crowd doesn't have a Blu-ray player. And I didn't want to just offer, a, you know, a Blu-ray to take advantage of this higher quality of, uh, you know, filming that we did this year in HD. Um, I didn't want to, you know, um, I didn't want to exclude those guys that didn't have a Blu-ray player. But at the same time, I didn't want to downgrade you know, our HD video footage to a standard def uh, DVD. So I, I figured the best way to accomplish this was to offer the standard definition DVD and then a flash drive that was in HD for the guys that, you know, wanted had that have the capability of playing, you know, on a smart TV and, and you're able to literally plug it into the USB on the back of your television and then just go right into the menu and pull the files and watch it right there off your flash drive, or you could put it on your computer and, you know, watch it on your computer there too. Um, so it really, you know, it's pretty versatile way to deliver it. I don't know that I've seen anybody else do that before, but, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I wanted to be able to reach those guys that still had a DVD player and didn't know the technology, um, and yet offer the film in its highest, um, you know, highest definition possible at the same time. Yeah. Well, a- after having watched it and, uh, you know, I can honestly say that, uh, not just because you're, you're, uh, on, on the show or the podcast or not because you're basically my hunt, one of my hunting idols, but it, it's just a must watch. Like it is, um, you're, you're some of the shots that you take and the angles and, uh, you know, the way you pull off some of those stocks, um, and, and then just, just the overall quality of the, of the footage and the hunt and kind of how you go about things is just, it's a, it's a must watch. So hopefully, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Hopefully you guys will support you. Yeah, for sure. So it's uh, 20 bucks and it's available on the stalker stick bows website. You just go into the website there and click on the store. It'll be one of the first, you know, items that comes up, um, available because it's most recently, yeah. been added and then also i'm doing a combo pack so you can buy the dvd for 20 or you can buy um that and the original um stalkers in the backcountry dvd for 30 so you're saving five bucks there and then if oh, you want man. to go one step further uh a friend of mine put together a, just an awesome um stick bow pig hunting video 
which I was part of, um, and that's you can add that on for another five bucks. So for thirty-five bucks, you can get all three of them, um, and uh, and save fifteen on that package there. So yeah. well, and yeah, I, I haven't watched the pig hunting one. I can imagine that it's awesome too. But if you haven't seen the the first one uh, of South's too, um, like 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 we've mentioned, the only the only difference you're going to see is maybe the quality of the of the of the you know hd and and the higher definition uh footage the epicness of the stocks and the hunts are, are just as awesome so i yeah. would just i'd go ahead and just get all that so okay right on um appreciate you coming on let me i'm gonna ask you one more question at the end here but before i yep. do um i just want to give you credit i want to give you credit south for uh first of all just you know like we mentioned earlier um, you clearly love the process. I want to give you, you credit for, uh, you know, just being in your element and, and, uh, you know, following your passion and it's very, very, uh, apparent and then, uh, give you credit for basically being a bow hunting legend. Um, you know, and I, I, I wouldn't throw that around, uh, lightly and, and, um, you know, I, I don't think anyone would argue with me. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're maybe not maybe not the status of you know a, a guy like larry jones but just just you're 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 uh you're one of the greats man so we we, well, appre I appreciate, we appreciate you and I, I know you got a lot of uh hunts ahead of you so yeah i mean you know larry is an inspiration to me dwight you as well i mean both of those guys were pioneers that i looked up to and to see them still getting after it and the fire still burning hot with both of those <laughs> guys and you know, they've got 25 years plus on me. It gives me a lot of inspiration that I can, you know, that, you know, I look backwards in 30 years of doing this and how much fun I've had doing it. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to, to feel like you're getting near the end of your years. And you look at them and they got, you know, you're 25 years, I'm 25 plus years younger than them. Yeah. And, uh, man, I'm like, wow, I, I still have a lot of years to look forward to also and the benefit of the 30 years plus of experience that I've had. So generations my best of, years might. Yeah. Generations of mule deer just all uh, shivered a, a chill. <laughs> just went, went down the back of their spine all over the Western United States. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what was that chill? They're the wind just shifted. Break a leg, break a leg. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know, yeah. and, and the, the last thing though is, uh, you know, and we didn't, we didn't really talk about this at all. Um, but it's, it's still just as important, but I, I know, uh, I know how, how much of a family man you are, um, and, and give you credit for that. You know, I, I know, I, I know of your situation, you ended up adopting, um, I think three, three kids, three, right. Yeah. From, from the same yep. family. And that's just, just awesome. Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm sure you changed their life for the better. And, uh, so give you credit for, you know, being, being, uh, focused on something other than yourself. So. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, uh, they're great kids and it's been a blast, you know, mm -hmm. um, they've been, uh, they've added a lot of life to our life. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Last question South and then I'll let you go. Um, yep. why, why do you hunt the back country? Um, you know, I absolutely love high vistas. And, um, you know, sitting up there on top of a mountain, on top of a ridge and just soaking in those expansive views. And, and as far as you can see, no sign of humans or civilization and just 
how small in the grand scheme it reminds you of who you are and it keeps a person humble um you know being up there and and uh looking across the canyon and thinking about chasing after that deer and dropping in the bottom of the canyon and back up the other side and um you know how much effort it takes to move around up there and how effortlessly you know animals do and how they eke out a living on that landscape year round and you know you're there for you know a week or 10 days and and uh um yeah just the humility that uh that it bestows upon you and and keeps kind of everything in perspective you know when you get up there and how what things are important and what things aren't important um it does a good job of reminding me of that and and uh just gives you a chance to kind of unwind really and and lose a lot of those things that um you know kind of weight you down on a daily basis while you're in you know civilization Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.